do grab a seat and uh, do grab a Bible indeed and not page 490 but page 940 um, as uh, was it Malcolm and Wise famously said all the right numbers but not necessarily in the right order it wasn't quite that was it but near enough uh, page 940 Romans chapter 3 and uh, let's let's pray shall we um, and father having sung a prayer so um, so that is our prayer as we come to your word. Um, it is that uh, we would receive it as, as food for our souls. And we pray that you would take uh, your oracles, your truth, and, and plant it deep in us. May it not just uh, go in one ear and out the other. Uh, may it not just penetrate our, our minds to educate us. But Father, uh, may it shape and fashion us in your likeness so that the light of Christ might be seen in us, our, our acts of love, our deeds of faith. We pray this for your glory's sake. Amen. Um, I'd be surprised if you haven't, but have you ever asked yourself the question, who am I? Right, who am I? What, is it, what does it mean to be a human being? Who am I? Of course, when we read the Bible, passages like Genesis 1 and 2, for example, tell us some stuff, don't they? They tell us that we're made in the image of God. Um, in other words, we have an, an inherent dignity and, and worth that makes us unique in the world that God has made and privileged. We, we've been made with God's very breath within us. And so we are, we are way more than the sum of our DNA, um, but we're, we're unique in his sight and we're made for relationship with him and, and with others. And we're made for rule. We're made to, to be stewards of, of God's good world. Um, but of course, that's not the end of the story, is it? Genesis 3 tells us that, that despite God's lavish uh, generosity to us, despite his goodness, um, humanity has, has opted to trust Satan's lies instead of God's word. And, and so we've rejected God's rule. We've preferred to rule ourselves instead. And, and so we find ourselves under the judgment of God. Um, and as we've been working our way through these chapters in, in Romans 1 to 4, the Apostle Paul has really been unpacking that problem that Genesis 3 describes, hasn't he? Who am I? What, what is a human being? Well, Paul has been telling us that as part of humanity, I stand guilty before God. Um, because I've suppressed the truth about him that is seen everywhere in, in the created world around us. I've rejected, therefore, the worship of God, and instead I've turned to worship anything other than him, and so have incurred God's judgment. Um, and, and if, like, like the Jews here were, I'm kind of a moralizer, you know, I'm someone who says, oh, this doesn't apply to me, you know, I'm not like that, I'm not under God's wrath. Well, Paul has said to me, no, you have no excuse uh, because you, too, are guilty of the same things. And, and so you, too, will be judged because God is just in his judgments. And so that includes you. Uh, and then if, as we saw last week, I, I, I've, I, I've been shown that if I think I can kind of take refuge from God's judgment in, in sort of religion, in, in religious devotion, if I think it's, it, it's okay, I'm going to be fine because I've been baptized or, or because God's on, you know, God's on my side because I go to church regularly or I take communion or whatever it is. Paul has said, no, there's no refuge for you in, in religious practice and, and rule keeping. 
Because God is not concerned with outward religious service and rituals. He looks upon the heart. And, and what is needed is the transformation of the heart that only the Holy Spirit of God can bring through the gospel. And, and now as we move to the beginning of chapter 3, his, his diagnosis, if you like, of who we are as human beings, it's nearly complete. And, and so he can move on to prescribe the cure, which is the gospel of God, as he calls it in chapter 1. But before he gets there, he's got some objections to respond to and he's got if you like a, a sort of summary diagnosis to make so let's have a look here's his two things i think in in this uh, uh, section that paul wants us to know about who we are as human beings and the first one look in verses one to eight is that you are a privileged person you are a privileged person um, uh, if you remember how chapter two ended last week if you were here last week you probably won't be surprised that Paul anticipates some objections uh, to, to what he said because he, he basically ended the previous passage didn't he but by, by saying that that if a Jew despite his circumcision despite his covenant status if he doesn't obey the law which of course he's been told he doesn't then he will be as good as an uncircumcised Gentile in other words, as good as out of the covenant. Whereas if an uncircumcised Gentile manages in some way to keep the law, well, then he will be considered as though he were a circumcised Jew. In other words, as though he were a, a full covenant member. And this is because God looks not on the outward sign that the religious devotion, but on the heart. And of course, that would have shocked the, the, the Jews here, wouldn't it? And it would have provoked all sorts of objections, which Paul now starts to, to tackle. And, and all of these objections are because Paul seems to call into question the, the special position of, of Israel as God's chosen people. This is what he expects will upset them. And so he puts forward the objections um, uh, that he anticipates they will have. So it's like a sort of preemptive strike. Uh, if you like. And, and here's the first objection. Look, you can see it in, um, in verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or, or what is the value of circumcision? And you can see where he's coming from, can't you? If, if what you've said is true, Paul, then what's the point? What's, what's the advantage in, in, in being a Jew, in being one of God's covenant people? What's, what's the advantage of my covenant status? And, and maybe after last week, we, we'd be tempted to think as well, well, it doesn't seem like there's any particular advantage in being a Jew. But that's not the way, actually, that Paul sees it, isn't there? Because he says in verse 2, much in every way. In fact, there is an advantage indeed. In, in, in fact, there are many advantages. Actually, he'll come to some more of them in uh, chapters 9 and uh, nine to 11, later on in the, uh, in the letter. But for now, he, he wants to mention one key advantage, look, in verse 2 which is that the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. In other words, the, you know, the, the 39 books that make up the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, um, and which were the very words or the very oracles of God, well, they were entrusted to them. And, and this is a huge advantage, of course. Not that it will guarantee their salvation. He's been stressing that in chapter 2, hasn't he? But nevertheless, it's a real advantage. 
Uh, If you remember back in the the last half of chapter 1 in verse 19, Paul had stated that all of mankind, everyone in humanity, knows enough about God to know that he exists and that he alone is to be worshipped. That just, just looking around you at the created world tells you that there is a God and that he is to be worshipped. Well, well, that alone is an incredible privilege, isn't it? There's, there's something that marks humanity out from the rest of creation, says Paul. God has revealed something of himself to all humans so that we can know our creator. What a privilege that is. But here, Paul's going further than that, isn't he? And saying that in the Old Testament scriptures, God has revealed much more about himself and about his plan and his will and and what he's like, his character. And he's entrusted this to the Jews. It's through them who had it first that we and, and all of humanity have it now, isn't it? Humanity doesn't have to be ignorant about the God who made us because God has revealed himself and his plans through the scriptures, which, which are the very oracles or words of God. And friends, there's an implication there for us, isn't there? And it's that what a privilege humanity has. What a privilege you and I have to possess God's revelation of himself to people. That is what the scriptures are. So, so Paul's saying to the Jews, well, yes, you, you may have squandered your advantage because you've, you've just looked to the outward signs, the religious observances, rather than to the heart. But even so, that doesn't mean you have no advantage. No, far from it. You have God's revelation. And that's a, that's a real advantage. But even as Paul answers their, their first objection, look, he envisages another one. Um, verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? In other words, Paul, does this mean... But because many Jews have squandered their privilege and, and lacked faith, that, that God's covenant faithfulness to them has somehow been kind of nullified. You know, that, that God has been less than faithful, that, that he's somehow not going to deliver on his covenant promises to the Jews. Is that what it means, Paul? And Paul says, look, verse four, by no means. Right. In other words, don't you dare blame God as you try and justify yourself. No, let God be true and everyone else a liar. Right? Don't even think such a thing. But the, the problem, says Paul, is not with God and, and his lack of faithfulness to his promises. No, God is utterly faithful. Right? The, the privileges of covenant status and having the law, they're real privileges. No, the problem is with you who have squandered the privileges that you were given and, and so increased your guilt. Did you see the point? He he illustrates the point, look, in verse 4, by by quoting from uh, Psalm 51. Um, As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And you might recognize the psalm that Paul's quoting there. It's it's, uh, Psalm 51. It's written by King David, after he'd been challenged over his adultery with Bathsheba. And it's a wonderful prayer of genuine repentance, isn't it? Ollie used it in his prayer of confession for us this morning. 
And, and, and if you remember the background, David had been caught, hadn't he? He'd been caught in open sin. Um, he'd been challenged about it. Um, and of course, his response to that challenge, well it, well, it could have been to blame God, couldn't it? To try and justify himself by blaming God for his own downfall. He, he could have said, you know, well, well, God, it was you who let this, you know, this beautiful woman come and live in the house next door. Right. And then you sent her husband off to war. Right. And it was you, God, who let her go bathing in the pool in in kind of full view. I mean, what was I supposed to do? And, and anyway, it's you who's given me my my passionate urges. I'm, I'm only human after all. You see, D- David could have responded like that, couldn't he? he? He could have sought to justify himself by by pointing it all back to God, accusing God of having failed in some way. It's your fault, God. But he doesn't do that, does he? If you know Psalm 51, his, his response in, in that psalm, and Paul quotes it there, is to say, you're justified in your words, right? And, and you prevail or you're blameless in your judgment. See, David, David knows that there's absolutely no point in, in sort of posturing before God and trying to justify himself for his sinful actions. That, that'll only increase his guilt, No, David knows that God is righteous. There's no blame to be attached to God. God is right to judge. The fault is David's and and it's his alone. So David needs to plead for God's mercy, not stand there trying to justify himself or or say it's God's fault. And, And this is the point that Paul is trying to get across to the Jews here. Don't blame God. Don't think that God is unfaithful to his covenant because Jews are going to be judged as well as Gentiles. No, sin is the problem and and everyone sins. You've understood your covenant uh, status with God wrongly. But by judging you Jews the same, he's actually being faithful to his covenant. And remember David, he knew. He knew that God was right to judge him because he'd sinned. And you Jews have sinned. You you are the ones who have been unfaithful. So so don't call into question the faithfulness of God. He's utterly faithful. Let let God be true and everyone else a liar. And I don't know whether whether you've ever been in a position like the Jews were in here where kind of every one of their their long-held, long-cherished beliefs was sort of crumbling before their very eyes and, and where every objection they could possibly come up with Paul has, has he's already anticipated and he's answered for them it's, it's devastating isn't it and, and we should remember that by the time Paul comes to write this letter to the Romans he, he's been preaching the gospel across the Roman world for years in other words he's he's heard it all Every excuse from from Jew and Gentile, every justification, every exemption, every contra argument, he's he's heard it all before. But just imagine yourself in the position of these, these first century Jews here reading this letter. They're losing the argument, aren't they? They're losing the argument. And, and friends, what happens when you're trying to justify yourself, but you're losing? What happens? Well, your arguments, your, your objections, they just get wilder and wilder, don't they? As, as you kind of clutch at straws, 
Recognize that? Well, it seems as though Paul here has even heard those wilder arguments uh, before as well. Just, uh, just check this one out. Look in, uh, in verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. I speak in a human way, which I guess is a relief. At least he's saying it's a human argument, I suppose. But do you see the argument? Do you see the the straw-clutching argument that that people will come up with in order to try and justify themselves? The the nub of it is this. Paul, if, if our sin, our unrighteousness, has the effect of showing up the righteousness of God, you know, when he judges us for it, well, when we sin, aren't we kind of doing God a favor? You know, if, if our wickedness just serves to demonstrate by by contrast how good and faithful and righteousness God is. Well, then our, our wickedness, it's got to be a good thing, hasn't it? And so God shouldn't be punishing us for it because it's it's making him look good. Do you recognize that kind of an argument? It, it's the kind of reasoning that you use, isn't it, when you've run out of sensible arguments to make. Right? When every reasonable objection has been dealt with and you're still clinging on to your crumbling argument, that's when you start coming up with stuff like this, isn't it? We're doing God a favor by sinning. He shouldn't punish us for it because our sin makes him look good. It's a ridiculous argument, isn't it? And Paul look, takes it apart quite quickly. Verse 6. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? In other words, don't be so stupid. Right? What kind of a God would he be? And so how could he judge the world if he just turned a blind eye to sin because it made him look good? But then look at verse 7, because this, this imaginary objector, he hasn't quite finished yet. Have a look, uh, verse 7. Um, but if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? So he's saying if, if my unrighteousness, my, my sin, if that emphasizes all the more God's righteousness, then why am I being condemned as a sinner? And, and apparently, look, according to verse 8, that's what some people are accusing him of, of, of saying. Why, why not do evil so that good may result from it? Let's do more sin. God loves it when you sin because it causes God to be glorified. And and of course, friends, yes, God does bring good out of our evil. But that doesn't nullify the evil, does it? Uh, You know, take um, take Judas Iscariot, for an example. He he sinned, didn't he, by betraying the Lord Jesus for money. And, And that betrayal led to Jesus' crucifixion, which led to the salvation of many. But does that mean that that Judas could come before Christ on the day of judgment and say, you should be letting me in, Jesus, and and even thanking me? Because if it wasn't for my betrayal, you wouldn't have gone to the cross and died for sin. (laughs) That's, That's a ridiculous argument, isn't it? But that's effectively the argument that's being put forward here. And and Paul doesn't even seem to think it's worthy of too much attention, right? He just says in verse 8, their condemnation is just, right? It's deserved. Of course, God is magnified even through our sinfulness. But that doesn't mean that God isn't right to judge us. 
What kind of a God would he be if he didn't? So what do we learn? What do we learn from these verses? Um, although the meaning it takes a bit of unraveling, doesn't it? It's quite, quite dense, takes a bit of unraveling. I don't think the application is, is massively hard, is it? Um, whilst we saw last time that, that, uh, that religious rights and, and rule-keeping and so on cannot solve the problem of sin, only the inner transformation of the spirit through the gospel uh, can do that. Nevertheless, friends, gathering with God's people to, to read and be taught God's oracles, God's word, is a huge advantage and a great privilege. And, and you know, it can, be, um, it can be something that for many of us who've just got used to a regular diet, maybe of, of reading our Bibles or being taught the, the scriptures, uh, uh, something we need to, to be careful not to squander. Um, maybe that's a danger for, for you. You know, maybe you've, you've always sought to belong to a, you know, a, a church that really teaches the Bible. Uh, maybe you've been disciplined in reading your Bible at home and, and you've gleaned some understanding from that. Um, you, you might even quietly be a little bit smug that, that you have Bible knowledge or you attend that kind of a church or whatever. And of course, it's good to have those things, isn't it? They're, they're real significant advantages. We have God's oracles in the scriptures. But we, we do need to be careful, don't we, that we don't squander that, but instead make it fruitful. You know, that we allow the privilege of, of sitting under God's word to lead us to obedience, to lead us to, to godliness, to lead us to fruitfulness in, in, our, in our mission. And, and not let it lead us to the kind of false security, the, the mistaken view that merely the outward shows of, of, of church attendance or Bible reading or whatever will keep us from God's judgment. God will judge sin. And his judgment is part of his righteousness. So we don't want to be dreaming up excuses and, and self-justifications uh, as, as uh, Paul anticipates the Jews are here. We are a privileged people, friends. God has given us his revelation of himself in the scriptures. And it's a real advantage. So we don't want to play games with it. But we want to let it lead us to fruitful living, don't we? So there's one thing that Paul says here about who we are as human beings. We are privileged people. God has given us, uh, via the Jews in the scriptures, the very words, the oracles of God. But I think there's something else here that he wants us to know uh, about who we are um, as, as human beings. And it's here in verses 9 to to 20 and and it's really you may have seen this as we read it it's really a summary of what he's been laying out for us so far isn't it namely that despite being a privileged people we are also corrupted and and in every area of our being uh, have a look at verse 9 this is his kind of summary diagnosis here what then are we Jews any better off no not at all for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. 
So he's, he's, he's shown us in the, in the section above that there is an advantage in being a Jew. And, and for us today, there is an advantage in having God's word and, and attending a, a church where it's taught and, and so on. But do these things actually give us a better standing before God? Are, are we any better off? Uh, well, Paul's told us already, hasn't he? But he, he, he repeats it here, uh, his conclusion. No, not at all. And the reason is because, verse 9, all both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Okay, we are under sin, which, which doesn't mean that we are merely sort of uh, liable to sin sometimes or, or that we occasionally do bad things. Right? It doesn't mean that. It means that we are under it. In other words, we're, we're slaves to it. We're, we're helpless prisoners to sin. And, and that's a really important truth. Friends, um, I remember in a previous church, um, somebody coming up to me after I preached this truth, forget where from, but on another occasion. And, and she said, Steve, you've got a wrong understanding of human nature. People are not bad by nature. They're, they're basically good. It's just that they do bad things sometimes. And I, I think that's probably a predominant view among lots of people. It's not the biblical view, though. And, and the difference is actually hugely important. And, and the reason it's important is because if you've diagnosed the problem wrongly, you'll look in the wrong place for the solution. And, you know, it seems to me that the great sort of one of the great human philosophies at the moment is that people's main problem is ignorance. And so the solution to that problem is education. Right. We, we see this all the time, don't we? Um, if you think about uh, something like, um, I don't know, underage pregnancy, say, or, or contracting STDs or, or whatever it is, we're told that the problem is a lack of understanding of the risks. And so what is needed is to educate the teenagers about safe sex or about the, the problems of unwanted pregnancy and, and so on. Or if the problem is, is a rising level of, of drug and alcohol addiction, say, the, the problem, we're told, is that people are ignorant of the risks, and, and so that if we educate them, you know, if we have advertising campaigns that teach about the risks and so on, that this, this will solve the problem. Now, of course, you know, I'm absolutely not saying that education has no part to play. Clearly it does. But, but do you see the underlying philosophy here? It's that people are basically good, that they basically want to be moral, but they're ignorant of the problems and so the need is for education. If, if we teach them the dangers, they'll recognize that it's a bad thing to, you know, drink to excess or to sleep around or whatever. And so they won't do it. But Paul says, no, that isn't the, the right thinking. The problem is not that people are morally good and, and that their wrong behavior stems from ignorance and can be corrected by education. That's not the problem. The problem is that we are, by our very nature, morally bad. We're under sin. We're slaves to it. We're addicted to it. We're prisoners to it. And we simply can't free ourselves from it. Which means that we don't need a teacher to correct our ignorance. We need a saviour to rescue us from ourselves. Do you see? And friends, as we'll see next week, so do come back. <laughs> that is exactly what God has sent us. Not a teacher. Not a politician. Not a, not a psychotherapist. A saviour, a rescuer to buy us back, to, to set us free from our slavery to sin. 
So let me say it again. It's not to say that teaching is not important. Clearly it is. It's a, it's a good thing. We need teachers. We need them in the world at large, of course. We need them in the church as well to, to disciple and, and, and equip the church. But the problem of the world is not ignorance. It's the fact that we're under sin. And that means that the right solution is not education, it's salvation. So he says, look, verse 9, we're, we're under sin. And that this applies to both Jews and Greeks. In other words, it applies to everyone. And then he gives, do you see, a kind of a great stream of Old Testament quotes to sort of reinforce his claim that this applies to everyone. Just read those verses, look, 10 to, to 12. They're, they're lifted from Psalm 14. Um, but just notice the constant repeating there. None. Not one. No one. Not even one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. No one does good. Not even one. Now, now what, that, what that clearly doesn't mean is that no one has ever done anything that's good. It doesn't mean that. What it does mean is that every area of our lives is in some way corrupted by our sin. And get this. Our sin is not primarily about what we do to each other. It's primarily about how we treat God. No one is righteous. Right? We, we don't stand righteous before God. Our relationship with him is corrupted. No one understands, so our thought life is corrupted. No one seeks for God, so our spiritual life is corrupted. No one does good, so our moral life is corrupted. Do you see? No one is exempt. There's, there's not any area of life that is not corrupted. And the rebellion is primarily against God. It's our relationship with him, ultimately, that's been ruined. Uh, and then he gives some, some illustrations, doesn't he, of the, the sort of the kinds of, of sins of which we're, we're guilty. Sins of uh, speech. Uh, verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So sins of speech. Sins in society, sins of behavior. Look, verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and mercy. That the way of peace they have not known. Um. And what do these sins say about us? Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Do you see the charge? We're under sin. And it means that we don't fear God. We don't understand God. We don't seek God. And that plays out, amongst other ways, in, in poisonous speech, in, in ruinous behavior that spoils our relationships with others as well. And, and he concludes at verse 19, whatever the law says, and he's, he's just been quoting from their scriptures, remember, it speaks to those who are under the law. In other words, this applies to, to you Jews, you, you moralizers as well. No one can wriggle out of this. Don't think that the law will save you. Don't think that your covenant status will save you. And for us, don't think that your baptism will save you. Don't, don't think that regular communion or church attendance or a moral lifestyle. No, every mouth will be stopped, verse 19. And the whole world 
held accountable to God. In other words, whatever the law is, it's not there to justify you, verse 20. Indeed, it it just serves to show up how guilty you are. So, friends, if if we want to know who we are (laughs) as, as human beings, well, we are very privileged people. You know, Genesis 1 has told us we're made in the image of God. And as Paul has reminded us, we have the huge advantage through the Jews in the scriptures of having the very revelation of God himself. But we are under sin. We're slaves to it and it corrupts every area of our being. And it will result in God judging us. And and every justification we can think of, every excuse we can bring, it only serves to increase our guilt. The only option left is is the, the very one, the only one, the glorious one. That is the entire point of the book of Romans, the entire point of the Bible and and, and of Christianity. And it is that God in his grace has sent the savior that we need to rescue us. From the problem of sin, from our slavery to sin. And in this next paragraph. Paul is going to start telling us all about it. And it will thrill our hearts as it calls non-Christians to do what David did and what Paul did and abandon reliance on anything but the mercy of God. And as it calls the Christian, you and I, to live each day in the light of the mercy of God, not not slipping into living as though our, our church attendance will save us or our Bible knowledge or our baptism or our moral living or our acts of kindness as though they will save us. Not kidding ourselves that we can sin with impunity because we prayed a prayer of repentance once. But rather living each day in repentance and trust in Christ and in his gospel alone have Mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for the diagnosis of your word. Um, Leading us not to try and justify ourselves, but to throw ourselves on your mercy. Uh, That mercy shown to us on the cross as our saviour took our punishment so that we can be washed clean. Father, please, would your word to us this morning cause us to to abandon and, and keep abandoning trust in anything but in our rescuer, in our saviour and in his glorious gospel. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.